Hey guys, and welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. I'm your host, Lacey Dunn, future registered dietitian, here to spread the scientific knowledge in the world of fitness and nutrition. Today we are talking all about hormone health, so get excited. I have Dr. Laura Bryden on board, and we are ready to go. Alrighty, guys, I have Dr. Laura Bryden on board. She comes from all the way back to New Zealand. So, Dr. Laura, how about you introduce yourself, who you are, and you tell my listeners a little bit about what you, got you started in hormonal health and the medicine field. Yeah, great. And thanks for having me, Lacey. I'm excited to be here and meet your listeners. Um, I started my way back after university. I started out as a, working as a biologist in evolutionary biology, and sort of out of that place that I started thinking about human health and you know, the fact that we're part of the natural world and, and it just, that was my next step from there was to go to naturopathic college in Toronto, Canada. Um, it's for your training. And then I started out in just general practice of naturopathic medicine in a small town, mountain town in Canada. And just started treating everyone for all sorts of different things, but slowly, slowly it was, I was seeing a lot of women. And I was finding that women's hormonal problems, period problems, respond incredibly well to simple things like diet and nutritional supplements and herbal medicine, way better than I'd even been taught to expect that they would respond. So I just, yeah, became quite encouraged by that. And by the time I moved to Sydney, Australia and set up a clinic there, I just decided to sort of put my focus on that and delve deeper into women's hormones. That's awesome, and I know from being quite obsessed recently about the interesting effects of hormone health on overall health, it's so important, it's just mind-blowing how lifestyle factors play such a role in your hormonal health, and not just, you know, Uh, hormones um, aren't just hormones. No, they're not, because we've tended to, I think, in... In medicine, we've tended to sort of compartmentalize women's hormones and women's health into just as a side issue. So there's health, and then there's like period health, and that's just kind of a separate issue that we'll talk about over there. And that it's crazy because, as you say, you know, our hormones it goes both ways. So our our hormones, estrogen and progesterone, our female hormones affect our general health in huge ways, which we can talk about today. And at the same time, conversely, our general health has a huge effect on our periods. And in my book, Period Repair Manual, one of the key messages there, one of the key points I was trying to make is that our periods are our monthly report card. So if something's not right with our periods, that's a sign that something's not right with our health in general. And so coming at it that way is look as a more of a whole body project than just you know taking a pill or something to have regular periods. Yeah, I would so agree. And I know <laughs> I have listened to a lot of the podcasts that you've done and you specifically talk about those pill bleeds and how they're not real periods. So can you go into yeah. that and discuss why these are not real periods and why it's um, the period is a indicator for our overall health? Yeah. So there's no reason to bleed, to bleed monthly on hormonal birth control. It's, it's really just a a smokescreen of just trying to mimic something natural, but there's there's no benefit for our physiology from that because the way that hormonal birth control works 
is by completely shutting down our own hormones, essentially, I would say, you know, castrating us of our own hormones and replacing those missing hormones with a kind of with synthetic hormone type drugs, which are not that dissimilar to say the hormone replacement that would be given to menopausal women. You know, they're, they're not real hormones. And um, so we're missing out on, on the, the, um, the value of a monthly cycle. Like a real period is actually about, not about the bleep at all, it's actually about the monthly event of ovulation, which is how we make our main hormones, estrogen, and most importantly, after ovulation, we make a hormone called progesterone, mm-hmm. which you can only get from either ovulation or, you know, if one day if you choose to be pregnant, that's the only time in our lives when we make the, make the hormone progesterone. And progesterone has really important benefits for bone health and mood and and... So there's no, just to clarify again for your listeners, there's no progesterone in hormonal birth control. Yeah, it's all estrogen based, right? It's estrogen, it's a synthetic estrogen, and it's a, what's called a progestin, which they sometimes call progesterone, but that's not accurate. It's a progesterone type drug, which has quite different effects. For example, I'll just use the example of mood, because um, progesterone has quite, I would argue, quite beneficial effects on mood, whereas hormonal birth control has been correlated in a huge study last year, 2016, um, a Danish study of 1.1 million women. They correlated the use of hormonal birth control with depression and anxiety. And I, uh, they don't state the mechanism there. It wasn't that kind of study, but I would say from my knowledge of the human body and hormonal birth control, I guess the, the effect of that would have been from the progestins or synthetic progesterone type drug that's used in birth control. Yeah, that's really awesome that they saw that. I know I've read one study in which there was a correlation. I don't know if it's a causation, but there definitely was a correlation with anxiety, depression, and taking hormonal birth control. Yeah. Correlation was as far as they went with that study. Yeah. But causation is a real possibility. (laughs) So I know one of the topics I wanted to hit on was birth control and its general side effects and specifically how it regulates our hormones. So we know it is estrogen-based. Um, and a lot of my listeners, what they don't know is the side effects of birth control. So I know you've talked about, um, how, you know, the hormonal birth control can stop you from having a normal cycle, um, for a couple, one to two years post, um, pill. So maybe can you talk about the side effects of birth control and what it does to your body? Sure. Yeah, so the first one is mood. I'll just say again, that's the one that I find most distressing <laughs> among my own patients because often, you know, the way women are, we we just um, where we can be, we blame ourselves. So if something's going on with us, it's like it must be, you know, if women, <laughs> yeah, it must just be something wrong with me. You know, if you develop depression, anxiety when you're taking the pill, especially if the, you're not getting any kind of backup or information from the doctor that it could be the hormonal birth control, you just think, well, I must just be you know, anxious, it must just be some, some problem with me. And so that's, I think, what's been happening a lot for the last few decades, and I find it quite concerning. Um, so, but beyond mood, um, some of the other side effects would be to do with metabolism. So the synthetic hormonal, the synthetic drugs in hormonal birth control impair something called insulin sensitivity. So they call cause insulin resistance. Oh, wow. Which your listeners may be familiar with that term. It's also called metabolic syndrome. Or, yeah. And 
in that way, it's the opposite. So our own, our body's own estrogen, which is called estradiol, which is a great hormone, actually, I think. I'm a cheerleader for both female hormones, including <laughs> estrogen. Estrogen improves insulin sensitivity, which is why women have greater insulin sensitivity compared to men. And estrogen also, this might be interesting for you, it helps to build muscle. Yay! Um, and I know estrogen's put down a lot as the bad hormone, so... It's, I, it's not the bad good. hormone. Yeah, so it actually is quite important for building muscle, which is probably why there's been a couple studies showing that women who take hormonal birth control have impaired muscle gain after exercise, so they're not, their body's just not responding the, the way it should or, or, you know, the way women, the way bodies do for women who aren't on hormonal birth control. So to me, that's, to me, that's just like a clincher. Like if anyone who's interested in, um, you know, physical fitness or, um, weightlifting, I just can't really see how hormonal birth control can fit into that picture at all. Um, and the other, I guess one of the side effects back to the mood thing is that, um, one, another study we know we have now is that women on hormonal, hormonal birth control, which includes the pill, um, injections, implants, you know, all the methods, different methods. Um, women on hormonal birth control have altered brain structure compared to women who cycle naturally. So you can see that on an imaging scan. They actually have their brain is shaped differently, um, which again is just quite disturbing. Yeah, it really <laughs> is very level. disturbing. <laughs> And, there, and the, the sh most shocking thing is, I think, is how little research there is, considering how many women take it and for how long we've been taking it. And we've only had these just kind of platitudes, like these big studies say, okay, well, it doesn't, you know, the pill doesn't, in hormonal birth control is safe because it doesn't increase long-term mortality or so. It's like, it's like really broad studies like that. Okay, that's not really getting to the question. The question, you know, for me would be wellness how women feel on it, what that's actually doing for their day-to-day -day lives. And another side effect um, is the way that hormonal birth control damages the what's called the microbiome. Would your listeners be familiar with that idea? Yes, the good they would. The intestinal, they would. The gut microflora, the, yeah. how that affects our health. Huge yeah, part that's upcoming and being yeah. pushed more. But wow, yes. so that affects that as well? Yeah, so it changes it quite a lot, and I think to the my understanding is to the degree it sort of damages it or alters it to the same degree that um, antibiotics do. Oh wow! So yeah, antibiotics which is why through your gut microflora exactly. So which is why, for example, um, women on hormonal birth control are more likely to have yeast infections or disrupted, you know, bacterial ecosystems. Um, yeah, so those are, I guess, my sort of top few biggest concerns. I mean, next on the list would be the way it affects libido in a lot of women, which makes me sad because I think yeah. that libido is important. Um, that can mean different things for different women, of course, but especially when, because um, the trend is to put women on the pill at a younger and younger age. So if you, you know, you put a 13 year old on hormonal birth control and she takes it until she's 30 or 35. Does she, the big, my big question is, does she ever know, does she ever, we've, does she ever have a chance to sort of experience what her, her libido would have, would be like, you know, her normal libido? She's kind of been, not kind of, she's been robbed of that. And yeah. Now, are there any long-term side effects to taking birth control for that long in regards okay, to well, like fertility? 
Well, that's a very good question. So for many women, fertility does return when they stop the pill. So I just want to say that straight out. Like I would fully acknowledge that, that it's um, some women just start ovulating right away after stopping it. And that's great for them. Um, some women don't. And as you say, it can take up to two years to get periods back to ovulate again. Um, and that seems to be especially that seems to be more likely to happen if a woman started it at a young age. And I heard a piece of information last year, which has had a big effect on me. It was from um, a, a woman, a, a doctor that I have a lot of respect for, named Professor Gerilyn Pryor. She's an endocrinologist in Vancouver, and she made the statement that um, it takes 12 years for a woman's hormonal cycling to mature. In other words, for the communication between the pituitary and the ovaries, which starts up when we're around, you know, 12, 13, we get our start, start getting our periods. For, for those first few years, we're probably not ovulating very much. You know, the periods are just kind of getting going. That's why it's quite common to have irregular periods at that age. That's normal. That's fine. But then normally what should happen is over the next 12 years, that communication cycle matures. And so by the time you're 25, you're ovulating every month, you're making lots of nice progesterone, you're kind of at your peak fertility, arguably around that age. And so then the next question from that would be, well, if we shut it all down, if at 13, 14, we shut it all down with a castrating drug, essentially, you know, what, what happens to those girls, then women? And, you know, the, it was an interview, I heard her speak about this, and the interviewer asked her, it's like, well, what happens then? And, and she said, well, when you stop the pill, at whatever age, 30, you just have to resume that maturation process. So you then have to just kind of, you're back at square oh, one. Wow. You just so have to try to get you. your, it would just have to try to get your, yeah. Yeah, so in, in that, thinking about it in those terms, it's no surprise that women would have a regular cycle. Some women will have a regular cycles when they come off it because their body's just, for some, in some cases, ovulating for the first time. I've had a number of patients who in their 30s are ovulating for the first time. And I'll just say ovulation for your listeners. You yeah, know, can you describe what ovulation yeah. is for them versus having a period? Exactly. Ovulation is when our ovaries release an egg. So that's to make a baby. Um, but it's an important event even if you don't want a baby because that's how when the ovaries ovulate, they make a new gland, a new hormonal gland that never existed before. <laughs> and in that place on that ovary, it's, it's a temporary gland called the corpus luteum. It makes progesterone. And again, progesterone is quite, I would argue, a very important hormone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's the benefit of it. And that's, and the regular ovulation is why we have, that's why we have periods, essentially. So without, this is back to my first argument about, you know, pill bleeds are not periods. Without ovulation, there is no reason to have a period, to bleed. It's really just a follow-on event from that, because after ovulation occurs, that new gland, the progesterone-making gland, lasts two weeks, and you could either, you know, after ovulation, you're either pregnant or if you've avoided pregnancy, then you're going to get a period two weeks later. And that is just, you know, that's how it works. That's how the body works. So the periods to me with my own patients are just a sign 
of regular ovulation. And that's what I'm looking for because that means that hormonally everything is going well. Now, do you see um, anything in regards to people just not ovulating due to their body not responding to estrogen or to progesterone? There are lots of reasons that women might not ovulate. Yeah. And so again, it's not, progesterone comes after ovulation. So progesterone is like the reward that you get for finally getting there. It's not easy to ovulate. Actually, it takes quite a lot. It takes a lot of things to be lined up. Well, because, and the reason is because the body regulates it pretty tightly. So the part of the brain that controls all of this is called the hypothalamus. It's just kind of this master control center in the brain. Mm -hmm. It has to decide if it's a good time to ovulate, which ultimately would mean make a baby, even if you don't want to make a baby, that's still what it's about. So the brain is like, right, it's looking at everything. It's looking at all the inputs. It's like, is there stress? You know, because if, if there's high stress, that could just mean, who knows? I mean, it could mean that you're in a, a war situation. Like it could mean anything. Like it, it doesn't yeah, it realize. Clue. It's just, it just does not, yeah, it does it's not just, want stress. No, it doesn't want stress. Um, and then the next question is, is there enough to eat? Uh-huh. So, the body really has to be fully nourished in every aspect to be able to ovulate. And that includes, I would argue, all the macronutrients, all the micronutrients, particularly certain micronutrients that the body just really seems to need to ovulate. One is zinc, um, one is vitamin D. There are a couple of key ones that would you sometimes... Like selenium eat. and magnesium as those as yeah. well? Yeah. I would say selenium and I would say iodine as well, which is a little bit controversial, but some dose of iodine seems to really help to convince the body that it's okay. And also I think it nourishes the ovaries directly. So any kind of malnourishment, including under eating, um, will stop periods. And it's a pretty common problem. I'd say it's maybe more common than even I used to realize, or it's becoming more common, or I don't know what's happening but I'm seeing a lot more patients who I think their main reason for not getting periods is they're not eating enough yeah I would definitely agree and I see in the fitness community the fitness world um under eating over exercising and then um high stress and high cortisol causing you know the lack of periods the irregular periods and a lot of people don't think oh hey just because I'm stressed you know I'm doing all this stuff and throw my mind everywhere elsewhere that it'll, it'll, it'll affect my periods, but it will. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. You're right. Yes. Stress does. Yeah. Because even and doesn't stress cortisol compete for progesterone? Some tie Yeah. There? I think that's part of it. I think in, in, at the end of the day, I think maybe that sort of mechanism is a little bit smaller player. The, the big mechanism is, so I said before about the part of the brain, the hypothalamus, that just when it perceives stress, it just, it's kind of smart, right? It thinks, wow, what the heck is going on? Like, this is not, you know, I don't feel good about. Hold up, hold up. <laughs> it puts up the X <laughs> signal. Yeah, it's like, this is not a good time. So, yeah. And that can be different types of stress. It can be emotional stress. It can just be, as you say, kind of over training, not sleeping enough, just work stress. All that said, you know, I I get a lot of questions about exercise and this might be important for your listeners. I, I, I mean, I think women can exercise. You know, I, I don't, I, it's rare that I would try to curtail the amount of exercise, like maybe in extreme cases, but most of the time, I, and what the re- new research shows, I believe, 
it's just about eating enough to match that. <laughs> so if you're very active and expending a lot of energy, really you need to eat more and then your body will be okay. Yeah, I would agree. I do think it's super important to not, there is definitely over-exercising seen in the fitness world. So I definitely think it's important to make sure, you know, you have that rest. You have those rest days. Yeah. But I don't think, like if you're training four days a week, that's not over-exercising. And you wouldn't be not no. having a period because you're training four days a week. Exactly. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so there are people, there are situations where it is if it's every day and many hours every day. And yeah, that, that can be different. But yeah, I get a lot of patients who, I don't know whether, yeah, they've heard something like, oh, is it okay that I go to the gym four times a week? I'm like, yes, that's okay. That's not, that, <laughs> well, to that's be honest, not... a lot of people just want an excuse to not go do it. Oh, maybe. So, okay, yeah. so next topic I wanted to hit on is PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome, and talk about the different types and the ways to help rebalance the hormones with PCOS. So could you kind of give it a description? I know your website, you talked about four different types of PCOS. So yeah. could you describe those for the, my listeners, please? Yes, I will. It's a good conversation to have. I'll just, I mean, let's just start by defining what it is. So it's a condition that's defined by high male hormones. So either measurably male hormones on blood tests, like testosterone and some other ones, plus or signs of male hormones, which is facial hair, or body mm -hmm. hair, usually, primarily that's a big one, plus the regular period. So another key feature of PCOS is a lack of regular ovulation. So there's definitely something going on. And But the confusing thing about it right now, I'm trying to get this message stated as clearly as I can, it's not one thing. It's a, The diagnosis is problematic because it's really just a description of those few things that I've just said, irregular periods mm -hmm. and male hormones. And women can come to that place for lots of different reasons physiologically. Does that make sense? Like yeah, they're not, it, yeah, it does. It's, it's not one an group. umbrella term for different It's an things. umbrella term, yeah. So in that way, it can be very confusing for people because they've been told they have PCOS and then they're kind of trying to look at you know, what it's about and the, what the to do. And it doesn't, it's not a good fit for them because their situation is so different. And the other thing to say here is just to be really clear, it cannot be diagnosed by ultrasound. Yes, that's Absolutely. another key point I wanted you to make Absolutely. sure you talked about because I see it all the time and I'm like, all right, so you naturally have fibroids and you're going to have cysts. So just going off of that ultrasound. Okay, so the cysts, yes. So let's talk about that. So the the condition is called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which sounds pretty much like it's to do with ovarian cysts, doesn't it? Just because yeah. of the name. That's completely wrong. And that's why they're actually trying to change the name because it's it's doing a lot of causing a lot of confusion. <laughs> so it's really nothing to do with those. They aren't even cysts. So the ovary is full of eggs, developing eggs called follicles. In Tech, like and technically those are cysts so the ovaries a, a normal ovary is full of cysts which are eggs um the word cyst is can be used to mean lots of different things <laughs> now on the one hand some women can get a totally different situation where some of those eggs follicles grow too large and they do something weird and those are ovarian cysts it's a large problematic cyst that's different very different from the situation of so-called polycystic which is really just describing an ovary where that month, for whatever reason, 
none of those follicles developed. Like normally for a woman, depending on her age, she'll have a certain number of follicles that are partway developed or one that's mostly developed. She'll have different sized cysts of, you know, around 10 or 15 or something, depending. And young women have a lot more. It's normal for young women to have like 20 follicles. Just just got way more active ovaries. So, um, yeah, so back to this so-called ultrasound finding like it doesn't mean anything it just means at that moment in time no no follicles developed um and that could be totally different three months later it's not it can be because of a situation of high testosterone like we talked about Mm -hmm. um so that's kind of why it got correlated with the syndrome but it can occur in anyone it can occur on those that polycystic finding could be there in a normal woman in fact, about a quarter of the time, a normal woman would have ovaries that look like that. Um, it can be there when you're on the pill. And conversely, you can have a true PCOS situation with high male hormones and irregular periods and the whole thing and not have polycystic ovaries. So in that way, I just I basically don't even want to hear about it. I'm just like, that's not part of the diagnosis as far yeah. as I'm concerned. So on to if the diagnosis, so then that leads to the first question should be, is it the correct diagnosis? How is it diagnosed? Like, do I actually have androgen male hormone type things happening? Do I, am I not ovulating regularly? Okay. So then the next question is why? And that's where I break it down into the types. And the most common type by far, about 70% of the time, that's happened because of an underlying genetic susceptibility combined with probably environmental toxins and other things, but combined with, on top of that, the biggest one of the big factors is insulin resistance. Yes, that, that's the one I see all the time. Yeah, so that's a very real situation. So in, in some women, insulin resistance causes polycystic ovarian syndrome. And, and some women, can be insulin resistant and not get PCOS. So it's not it's not that straightforward. But it, when someone has PCOS, if she's insulin resistant, you, insulin resistant, you treat the insulin resistance, okay. and that means, I would argue, cutting sugar, and um, cutting sugar, looking at carbohydrate intake, but not necessarily going totally low carb. I would and, agree. Yeah, monitoring, doing yeah. Complex thinking, carbs. Thinking about them carbs. around insulin sensitivity yeah. time, yeah. post-workout, all the above. Yeah. yeah, think about it. Yeah, put it in, in, put it for the individual as well, kind of what yeah. she needs in terms of carbohydrates. So we're on the same page there. Yeah. And magnesium and exercise, of course, strength, strength exercises, um, strength training is great for insulin resistance. So that's, that's that group. Um, and then I guess the other types that I talk about on my blog are I, I talk about a post-pill PCOS, which in a way, it can be real PCOS. It can be that they actually have antigens happening. It can just be that they haven't got their periods off, coming off the pill and the doctor did an ultrasound and just therefore said they have PCOS, which is not accurate at all. But if they... <laughs> see, sadly. Yeah. But if, if they do have true antigens... It could be that it's just a problem that's been unmasked, that they had it before, that tendency before, they, and the pill made it worse because the pill worsens insulin resistance, so they've kind of got that happening. Or it could be, depending on which pill, like coming off some of the pills like Yasmin and some of those types of 
what are called anti-androgen pills. I do see some women get quite a surge in androgens or male hormones after stopping those sorts of pills. I think it's just a comp, you know, the, um, sort of a rebound effect. Mm-hmm. And that's often temporary. So I'll track them and like after six months, the androgens go down, even without doing very much. But depending on what's happening with them, I might use some herbal medicines to reduce androgens and help them to ovulate. And zinc as well, which has an anti-androgen effect and helps to ovulate. So zinc is great for any type of PCOS, actually. And then the other, quickly, the other two types. Um, you can see PCOS is a huge conversation, so I'm trying to be. You're yeah, compartmentalizing it a little bit. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to, be to bring it all in. Yeah, as simple as we can. The next type is just um, what I call inflammatory PCOS. So these are women that have a lot of maybe food sensitivities or a gluten problem or just something going on that's creating, generating a lot of inflammation. And one downstream effect of that can be that it impairs ovulation. It hypersensitizes the androgen receptors, which are the testosterone receptors. So they start to get a lot of hirsutis, like facial hair and yeah, those sort of symptoms, but they're not, it's not because of insulin resistance. It's, you know, it's a different situation. So then the strategy is to remove those inflammatory foods, maybe work on improving the gut health and the good bacteria, because that can help to reduce inflammation in the body. And then the fourth type of PCOS is kind of sort of everything else. You know, there's other, so many other factors that can be an underlying cause that's pushed a woman into that state of high male hormones and it can be things like thyroid problems um i would argue vegetarian diet sometimes can do that too much soy can sort of push them there um nutrient deficiencies yes yeah things like that yeah speaking of the vegetarian diet and that is also something i've seen in research is too much soy causing estrogen dominance so is that something that you see is too much soy causing effects on your hormones and your thyroid? Soy affects hormones. I think everyone can agree on that. Yeah. But I, I, it's actually, soy, it affects hormones in a way that's quite different from what a lot of people think or what seems to be out there on the internet. Soy is, in a nutshell, anti-estrogen. Okay. So, so it blocks estrogen and women who are tending to be okay, so in women who are tending to be quite high estrogen, that can be beneficial actually. That can help to lighten periods. And um, in women who are not ovulating, that can be a problem because it can just stop you from ovulating. I would say too much soy in the diet for some women could compl- stop them from having periods. I've, I've definitely seen that. Um, or cause cycles that are quite long, taking a long time to get to ovulation, making quite low levels of hormones. And soy can also affect thyroid. So I think that's quite a real effect as well. I'm not totally anti-soy. Like I think, I know I hear <laughs> both ends. Like I hear, like then I get women who are afraid to eat any soy, like even a bit of edamame with sushi, like just any, you know. No, no, um, always moderation with everything. It's like taking anything out of your diet is never good. So. Yeah, except sugar, though. except sugar, I'd say would be the one exception to that. I think for some people, Taking sugar right out is beneficial. Yeah, <laughs> that's like the it, one. And it's kind of crazy because people are like, "Oh, don't demonize sugar," but if you take away added sugars, 
your health is so much better. Your energy is better. Your skin is better. Your digestion is yeah. better. Your inflammation, like everything gets better. So I hate being like anti-sugar, but I do agree. If you remove added sugars, huge benefits yeah. there. And we all know, you and I, and you know, we're all talking about added sugars. So of course, yes, the sugar that occurs naturally in the fruit and vegetables that one's eating is beneficial. And the, I would argue, you know, the, the glucose in complex carbohydrates is, can be beneficial. But we're t what we're talking about is the yeah, added sugar, including natural sugars like um, dates and um, all those sort of, I, I actually find that for my, some of my PCOS patients, if they have insulin resistance, one of their biggest downfalls are date treats like desserts and smoothies and um, things that are sweetened with so-called natural sugars can be sabotaging their Yes, and that sabotages efforts. a lot of people with their <laughs> yeah. diets too. I see a not they're like, I'm like, so, okay, list out your foods for my clients. And I'm like, list out your foods, what you ate? And they're like, okay, well, I had this healthy breakfast made with um, bananas and walnuts and like avocado, something like crazy absurd of sugar and high fat that is classified as healthy. And I'm like, okay, well, we need to take a step back. We need to look at, hey, this is a healthy nutrient, has a a lot of good food for you, vitamins and minerals, but we also have to look at the caloric value. So, and look at how it's affecting you. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I don't worry too much about calories, but yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that might be an area where we don't, we see things a little bit differently, but definitely um, concentrated sugar is damaging to insulin. Now, what are your thoughts on calories? Speaking of, calories. I don't, yeah, I don't count them. I don't, I, I, I don't know if I'm just, maybe it started with a laziness way back when I was in university and learning. I was just like, that just seems exhausting to have to count calories. So no, it is. And I would agree a lot for a lot of people. It's not the way to go. No. And I, and also I find that a low calorie restricting calories just doesn't end well. It just, just never seems to end well. It suppresses metabolism. And so with my own patients and I don't focus on weight loss as an outcome. I focus on health. Um, I focus on, just to bring it back to insulin resistance, I focus on correcting that. So if someone has insulin resistance, it's like, we have got to get your insulin down to a certain level. So at which point your whole rest of your hormonal system can function. Yeah. You don't want to um, have any chronic diseases. So yeah. And also the way in, insulin, too much insulin or insulin resistance can be a problem for periods, um, for skin. For, so yeah, so I focus on getting that down. So I really focus on um, foods, whole foods that are good for the gut bacteria, foods that are delivering the what I call being fully nourished, you know, delivering the nutrients that are required for being fully nourished. And then for some patients, I get quite strict about sugar. And I always say you can have whole fruit, you can have vegetables, but no dried fruit, no fruit juice, no soft drinks, no um, breakfast cereals, <laughs> no sweetened yogurts, no all that. And it's, I'm not doing it because of the calories. I'm doing it because of the sugar. Yeah, the yeah. added sugars. Yeah. Huge yeah. role there. Yeah. So, yeah, I would definitely agree. Nutrients over everything, health over everything, for yeah. sure. There. Mm -hmm. So another topic I wanted to talk about is how your gut and eating affects your hormones. And I know we talked about the microflora and how that yeah. plays a huge role. But what else do you see in regards to eating 
other than sugar and um, soy. Yeah. Okay. So we've done, we've ticked off the sugar and soy. So look, it's period health. So let's speak about now, maybe for example, PMS, because that's a common, you know, problem. And, Mm -hmm. and it's not, I'm going to say it's not normal. And by that, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean that women are not normal if they happen to have PMS. I'm just saying it's the expectation for most of us should be that when everything is going well in our bodies and we're healthy, then the period should just come with no symptoms and no pain <laughs> and just be, it's a normal body event. It shouldn't be associated with symptoms. So Yeah, I wouldn't say PMS, being in pain would be a good and normal thing ever. It's not a normal. Being in pain is not normal. So we have, I know we have in this, our, for some reason, we've just got this sort of normalized this idea that periods should be painful, but they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. So um, both kind of period pain and PMS are associated with, we know from the research, with a degree of inflammation in the body. So we can really modify that with diet by, again, keeping the gut bacteria healthy, feeding them the vegetables they need, mm-hmm. because that can help, that can just has a natural anti-inflammatory effect on the body. And also keeping the gut bacteria healthy is another way, good way to clear estrogen from the, that's how estrogen leaves our body, is out through our bowel, through the digestion. So, in, and if the bacteria are not quite right in there, they tend to recycle estrogen in, in quite a strong activated form back into our bloodstream, which can be a little bit too stimulating and can certainly mm-hmm. contribute, I think, to PMS. So um, making sure to get the, that fiber in, all those necessary yeah. probiotics and your vitamins and minerals would be essential, especially if you have estrogen dominance. Yeah, exactly. Lots of vegetables. And also the other thing I guess about estrogen dominance, like sort of on that topic, is to um, be careful with alcohol. So I, yeah, I'm just leaning more and more <laughs> I've always been a moderate drinker, like, and I personally enjoy the occasional drink, but I've just decided from the research and what I'm seeing, and I just think it's not good for us. I would say it's not good for women's health. I suspect it's not good for men's health. Yeah, I've either. never been a fan of alcohol, so you're not a fan, I'm in the no, same boat as you. We're on the same page. Yeah, I just think women are better off not drinking at all, or if they are going to drink, you know, a few a week would be kind of the range to be thinking about, maybe Glass like three or four. red wine. The occasional, but not every night. Yeah. Because alcohol impairs the removal of estrogen from the body. And that's why alcohol correlates with breast cancer risk. And it's a one it's a one on one linear correlation, as in the more kind of drinks per week that you have, the risk of breast cancer just goes up linear like straight up. I mean so yeah, not dramatically. I mean, I'm just saying like the risk is relatively low anyway, but it's increased the risk is increased slightly by every drink per week that you have. So I think, yeah, and also reducing alcohol can just stabilize estrogen, make for an easier premenstrual time, PMS. And getting the key nutrients, I'll come back to zinc because it's there's been a couple of clinical trials showing that zinc is quite helpful for preventing period pain. And um, so you can get zinc from diet, um, including meat and um, I guess the vegetarian source would be pumpkin seeds and also looking at um, a supplement if necessary. A simple zinc supplement can do a lot for period pain. Yeah, I would agree. And, um, I see with inflammation and immunity, yeah, huge benefits absolutely. there. Yeah. It's a great mineral. It's like the humble zinc, you know, it yeah, doesn't get much. Nobody talks about it either. Nobody ever. talks about it. 
It's, and it's so good. I have a post on my blog called um, Seven Ways Zinc Rescues Hormones. It's like, it's just a really important... The little you know, Superman of the... Yeah. little. And I guess the other thing I want to bring up here on diet is around dairy. Because I do find that cow dairy, cow's dairy products can be a problem for some women. Now, I don't mean everyone. I think dairy is... I personally think dairy is a reasonable food for some some people, many people. Um, I my own understanding of the issue is that um, a lot of the problem with dairy is to do with an inflammatory protein called casein in cow dairy that has quite is quite similar to gluten in the way that it interacts with the immune system and can generate inflammation, and then that inflammation can affect periods. So I find that normal cow dairy can make periods heavier, can make them painful in some women, not everyone. But it's also another simple way to lighten periods and get rid of period pain is just by taking a few months away from normal dairy. It's just quite a simple thing to do. I find that most women are fine with goat and sheep dairy and also dairy from Jersey cows, which is different because depending on the breed of the cow, they don't have the case, the type of casein that causes inflammation. Okay, so there's a specific so, type then. Yeah, it's specific cows. It's from Holstein cows, <laughs> getting very specific, which of course is the the majority of dairy cows. So it does mean seeking out different dairy products. Yeah, you really but that have can to do be, your research there to figure out yeah, where yeah, dairy is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you can eat, most people can get access goat cheese and sheep cheese. That's not very difficult. Yeah. So very interesting there. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one more topic I wanted to talk about is irregular periods due to thyroid issues and talking about why TSH isn't just the answer for testing. Yep. Okay. So. Here, um, having an underactive thyroid, we'll talk about that today, that um, that means the thyroid is not producing enough thyroid hormone. That interferes with periods in a few ways. It, it can cause irregular periods. It can make periods heavier. Um, one of the things is that it just, having not enough thyroid hormone can make it very difficult to ovulate because the ovary, to ovulate and make that progesterone-making gland takes a lot of energy. And as you know, thyroid hormone is the energy hormone. It's kind of like the little light switch, the little on switch for every cell in the body, and that includes the ovaries. They have a big job to do those cells. So that's, I think, one, one of the main downstream effects of not enough thyroid hormone is not ovulating regularly and not making enough progesterone. Yeah. So And that can result in heavy periods, irregular periods, spotting, um, spotting between periods is something I look for quite commonly. Um, and the reason that TSH, so TSH is called thyroid stimulating hormone. It's was only invented. Did you know that it was invented in like 1976? No, I did not. Before that. Yeah. So we, we always think, of course, we tend to think, oh, it's always been like that. That's yeah. how they test thyroid. That's like for centuries. That's what they know. <laughs> no, so it's actually before 1976, they... Doctors diagnose thyroid problems, underactive thyroid, based on symptoms. Yeah, and I know that's which the way they're good. going towards now again, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting. So just looking at the person, like, does she have hair loss? Does she have fatigue? Does she have dry skin? Does she have elevated cholesterol on blood tests? Because that's a good marker of underactive thyroid. 
and um, and so we've it's you know a fairly new thing last 40 or 50 years so we've tended to put a lot of emphasis on trust in that <laughs> but there are different reasons that it's not accurate because um, things like stress and chronic inflammation and insulin resistance all of these things can actually alter the TSH reading and potentially mask a problem mask an underactive thyroid problem so what I tend to do is look at symptoms I also look at a another blood test called thyroid antibodies or TPO antibodies which is a common autoimmune reaction against the thyroid so if you have would that be high antibodies would be an indicator then yeah okay yeah and that correlates with symptoms we know that from the research that so women who have that inflammation or that what's called autoimmunity against the thyroid tend to um, start to manifest symptoms of underactive thyroid even if their TSH is in the normal range so that could be a good just alert that you know some help is needed in that area so what would be your suggested tests or would you suggest always it being like outward um, symptoms to look at I will I do I just so I do a few things I look at I look at symptoms which will include hair loss dry skin fluid retention um, like I said, the looking for other signs on blood tests like elevated cholesterol that can indicate thyroid. Then I also I also will do a TSH because sometimes that'll come mm -hmm. back elevated. So that's that then that makes it really easy. And I also ask about family history because if they have sisters or mother that had underactive thyroid, then it's more likely that that's going to be a problem for them. And then do the extra test of thyroid antibodies. And based on all of that, decide on whether they need just a, a sort of natural treatment options for thyroid or and also some women would benefit from taking thyroid hormone I think that taking thyroid hormone is can be quite helpful and I consider that a natural treatment in a way it's a natural hormone it's you know, a good fix for some people now do you feel that um, that throws off other levels like your hormones like your progesterone your estrogen no, you know, I feel like if they need it, like I wouldn't, I don't want someone with normal levels to take thyroid. Oh, hormone, no, obviously. no, throw everything. But if they, if they need it, it's not going to throw off other levels. It's, it's going to support, all, it comes back to ovulation again. Everything with me comes back to ovulation. If they weren't ovulating because they didn't have enough thyroid hormone and then they take thyroid hormone and they start to ovulate, that's going to reestablish normal estrogen progesterone level. So that would be the key there. Yeah. Getting yeah. everything back and to actually, normal. Th yeah, thyroid hormone can also help with the detoxification or removal of estrogen from the body too. So potentially have so that would you know, an estrogen. Yeah, that would be something yeah. to definitely make sure you look at for estrogen dominance would be yeah. your thyroid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I thought of something else I wanted to say. Ahead, it yeah. just relates back to the period, the period pain. I try to say this every podcast because. Um, a number of your listeners might have a condition called endometriosis. Yes, my mom actually has which, that. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about it today. It's because um, I've just said earlier that period pain is not normal. So you know that's pretty high expectation for some. For I think for a woman, I think for anyone without who does not have endometriosis, that's very achievable. You know, periods should be painless. For someone who has the disease endometriosis it can be a different situation it's not just bad period pain it's actually an inflammatory disease that affects the whole body and affects the pelvis so it it's a disease it's a it's a disease that 
has symptoms, period symptoms, but it's not just a problem with periods, if that makes sense. So it's, yeah, I think I put it in quite a different category. And for women who actually do have endometriosis, I have a whole other set of you know, treatments that they need. And I would not be saying to them necessarily to just immediately come off hormonal birth control if they're finding that those drugs are helping to suppress the pain, then that might be a situation where um, hormonal birth control is acting kind of more as a medicine for them. So what would you suggest? You would suggest the hormonal birth control for them? Or going off of more health and lifestyle changes to help alleviate? I would suggest treat it as a serious disease, (laughs) first of all, and realize it, which it is. Um, Be under the care of a gynecologist. Decide if um, surgery is necessary and if you do have surgery so they actually one of the main the standard medical treatment is to surgically remove the lesions from inside the pelvis and I support that but if you're going to do it then it's really worth seeking out a surgeon who does who's properly trained and can do it well yeah. so that they get it all <laughs> and they don't cause too much scar tissue and and then after that it's about sort of preventing it from recurring with the right surgery it might not recur anyway but after that it's um, hormonal birth control sometimes but the other way I come about it I go about it naturally is to draw on some of the stronger anti-inflammatory treatments that I might use for other inflammatory diseases like turmeric gluten-free um, really work on the gut microbiome and treat it like an inflammatory disease so that's I mean, that's another sort of topic a bit outside of our scope today but well, I've done a I just whole had to mention it because anti-inflammatory podcast if anybody wants to hear it go straight uh, okay, to there that you go. one you can go to that one go straight to that one so that because it affects one in ten women so guaranteed some of your listeners yeah I, I today bet one of are, them is like oh wow this isn't normal to be in yeah. pain what no no yeah yeah and it's it can be quite a lot of pain too like I just sometimes I hear the stories from endometriosis sufferers of how much pain they've been in I can't quite believe it. It's like, how did you? I feel so bad because I, 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 I see, I'll see my mother, and she just she can't function. So you're just yeah. like, wow, that's just, and it, it really makes you feel blessed and thankful that you don't have to go through something like that, and happy to know and push on the fact that make your periods light and symptom free because you can, and you're not there in the disease world of endometriosis. Right, you don't, you don't have. You, yeah, you don't have that. So, right. Yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah. So I think we are going to conclude this podcast here. I just want to thank Great. you so much again for coming on Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. And if you want to tell my listeners any last words for you, if you want to tell them where they can find you, follow you, that would be great. Great. Oh, okay. Thank you, Lacey. So I'm at larabryden.com, Lara Bryden's Healthy Hormone Blog. And that's my handle on social media as well, at Lara Bryden for Twitter and Instagram, and my book is Period Repair Manual. Yes, so which is available on Amazon. And, yeah, yeah. If yeah. anybody has any questions or wants to read up more about hormones, thyroid, any of the above, make sure you check out her book. She is fabulous. It is fabulous, and I hope all of you listeners have a fantastic day and that you learned something from Dr. Laura today. Great, thank you, Lacey. Thank you, and hopefully Bye. I will talk to you later. Thank you so much again. Bye. Bye.